0: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Is podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. David Buss. Some of you already know him, and if you're being introduced to Dr. Buss for the first time, it's, I hope you, you're in for a treat. Um, (laughs) So I'll give a little introduction and then you can color it in however you'd like, Dr. Buss. Um, Dr. Buss is currently a professor at the University of Texas, but really no introduction I can give here would really do justice to the true impact you've had on the field of psychology. And I just want to say up front that it it really is an honor to host you in conversation. I feel like you're you're blessing the Psychology Is podcast with your presence. Just to provide a little context for our watchers and listeners, uh, Dr. Buss is One of the founders of evolutionary psychology and the author of several books, including The Evolution of Desire, The Dangerous Passion, that one I read and it was great, The Murderer Next Door, and Why Women Have Sex. He's also been publishing scientific research prolifically since 1980. He's been decorated with awards from various professional organizations, and he's been named one of the 50 most influential psychologists in the world. There's another list that names you one of the 30 most influential psychologists alive today. Um, And yeah, you know, we're publishing this podcast to the world just before the release of your newest book which is entitled, Why Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. Extremely important topic, of course. And you and your team were kind enough to send me a copy in advance. So I had the great pleasure of reading it ahead of talking to you here. And there's no way that we can exhaust all of the insight in this hour or so long conversation. So I highly recommend the book to everyone. It's set to release on April 27th, 2021. So let me ask you this, Dr. Buss, do you feel? Do you still feel excitement in anticipation of a new book release, even though you've had many so far?
1: Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I mean, uh, actually, this is the first book, the first new, new book that I've written in um, 11, 12 years. Mm-hmm. So the last one was with uh, Dr. Cindy Mastin, Why Women Have Sex, uh, and so, um, you know, in a way, I've been, so in a way, it's extremely exciting because it's the first new book, and it's a topic. Conflict between the sexes a topic I've been kind of obsessed with for, uh I would say, about three decades or so. I think mm. I published my first paper on it about thirty years ago, mm. and it's a topic that I keep coming back to because it's such a recurrent theme. I mean, we notice it, in I mean, of course, it makes the news all the time now, and you know, there. Current episodes in the news, and like Mario Cuomo, uh, the the woman in the UK who got abducted and killed, um, uh, big scale sexual harassment uh, cases. You know, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, and, and uh, several people comments with me, oh "Boy, it's um, it's a very timely that your book is coming out with all these sex scandals." But but in a way, it's a perennial because. It just seems that every month there are you know new ones that that erupt and burble to the surface and and I think that um, one thing I would say is after I spent, I spent about three years writing the book and probably 30 years on and off doing research for the book um but I, I at the end of the book I kind of came to the conclusion that this is uh, one of the most, if not the most, human rights violations, uh, period. Uh, Of course, there are many human rights violations having to do with um, racism and bigotry and in-group out group distinctions of all kinds, but sexual violence against women, um, it, it crosses uh, ethnic boundaries, political boundaries. You know, you see these sex scandals erupting on the on the left, the political left, the political right, and in all ethnic groups. And um, and so it's one of these things, and you're dealing with 50 percent of the population. You know, that is that is women, and in terms of the the actual victims, you have the primary victims, as they're called in the literature, that is those women who are uh, victimized by sexual harassment or uh, unwanted sexual attention or stalking or intimate partner violence or sexual coercion of various forms and then you have what they call secondary victims which is all the people who deeply care about and are invested in these individuals so the mothers the fathers the brothers the sisters the male friends the female friends you know basically Um, You know, the whole network of people and they're affected, you know, by the trauma experienced by the primary victims. And so when you, you know, just if you talk about how widespread uh, sexual violence is, uh, I think it qualifies as one of the most or the most uh, pervasive human rights violation worldwide. Mm. Uh, And so um, I, I hadn't realized that fully when I started writing the book, but by the time I ended the book, by the time I finished writing the book, I think that conclusion is warranted. You know, just, just to throw out a couple of um, statistics there. And, and, and of course, as you know, Nick, there you know studies vary in method and sampling. and So the actual estimates are gonna bounce around, but, um, but you can ballpark it. Uh, if you look at meta-analyses and then results that um, transcend particular the particulars of studies. and so ballparking it, uh, something like fifty nine percent of all women have been subjected to sexual harassment. Uh, uh, Canada, which is one of the most uh, has the most uh, one of the lowest rates of intimate partner violence, uh, still finds that twenty seven percent of women, Canadian women will be the victim of uh, intimate partner violence at some point during their life. Uh, And then, you know, you get into rape statistics, and of course those also depend heavily on uh, how broad or narrowly the definition uh, that the researcher uses and so forth. But um, you can ballpark the estimate that something like 15 to 25 percent of women will be the victim of a rape or attempted rape, um, you know, during her lifespan. And, and this is particularly true during the young ages, so uh, high school and, and, and college. So, um, so the point is that uh, if you look at, and, and I'll mention a couple other while I'm rambling here. I'm sorry to ramble here, but um, one of the things that struck me in writing the book is just the sheer range of types of sexual violence against women. And so modern forms include things like revenge porn. And this is a relatively new study, but so uh, uh, typically a boyfriend or husband has uh, uh, access to sexual images of their partner. Then there's a breakup in the person who is dumped. Uh, looks to seek revenge on the woman who's dumped him. And so, um, and, and so States state laws are just starting to catch up uh, with these and make them illegal, but they're way, way behind the time. So one Australian study put the figure at about 10% of women have been v- victims of revenge porn. Uh, so, um, and, then, and then there's yet another one. And I'll just mention this briefly, and then maybe we can um, get to some other issues and some questions that you have. Uh, but uh, that's uh, what, what are called, uh, uh, used to be called photoshopping, but with the modern technology, it's called deep fake. Mm-hmm. So, so people will take, if they want to get revenge on someone, they can take a, an image, a face, and put it on a body and even animate it to look like they're engaging in sex acts that they're not engaged in, or never have engaged in, uh, in, in that way, and so, um, and, you know, and so that's um, that's yet another form. So the key point that I'm trying to make is that the types of sexual violence are extremely wide ranging, and one of the things that I try to do in in the book is to bring all these different types of sexual violence within a unifying together with a unifying theoretical framework, sexual conflict theory, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an evolution based theory. And and, um, no one really has done that before. So all these different topics, intimate partner violence, sexual harassment, sexual coercion, revenge, porn, all these are treated in the scientific literature as separate topics, but they're really um, different facets of Common themes. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's one of the things that I try to do in the book is to kind of integrate all these different forms of conflict between the sexes.
2: You do a great uh, job. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So I'll mention just one other thing while I'm rambling, and then I promise I will stop, uh, is that it has to do with the title of the book, um, uh, you know, When Men Behave Badly, uh, The Hidden Roots of Sexual uh, Deception harassment and assault, uh, and in the UK it's being published as Bad Men with the same subtitle for reasons that we don't have to get into. But when I started writing the book, I actually thought that I was going to um, uh, have e- equal coverage of men and women and the cost that they inflict on each other. Because uh, in sexual conflict theory, they're, they're for each adaptation in one sex, they are uh, co-evolved adaptations in the other. And so you get these perpetual uh, co-evolutionary arms races. Uh, but the more I dug into it, and, and I do cover some of the, I cover the ways in which women deceive men, as well as the ways in which men deceive women. And uh, to some extent, uh, other forms of cost infliction that women impose on men, as well as men impose on women. But uh, over time, There was a shift in my emphasis to focus more on men and the bad things that men do. And the reason for that is because it became very apparent that when it it comes to things like sexual harassment, intimate partner violence, stalking, the majority of the perpetrators are men and the majority of victims are women. Not exclusively, but uh, it really leans strongly in that direction. And the more extreme the form of sexual violence, the more men tend to have a monopoly on being perpetrators and women being victims. And so that's, that's, that's why the title of the book came out the way it did because it's an accurate reflection of the emphases that I have in the book.
0: Mm. That's mm. interesting because I can, I can see that as the book unfolds that initially you do talk more about the dynamics coming from both sides for example, when you discuss why people have affairs, there are reasons that men have affairs and there are reasons that women have affairs. And you also discuss something that we'll get into right in the beginning here, the dark triad traits and what that, how that plays out when men possess them at a high level and when women possess them at a high level. But then as the book continues going on, and especially in chapters four through nine, you really then zero in more on men's bad behavior so i I can i can see what you're saying and i'll just plant this seed now one of the questions i want to ask you and you might not have an answer it might be difficult to answer but one of the questions i want to ask you is here before the book comes out i i'm wondering if you anticipate what types of critiques or criticisms the book might get. And I also might even get more specific and ask you, are there any criticisms that you anticipate that you think are going to be unfair or come from uh, somewhat of a missed understanding of the key points? And then are there any criticisms that you anticipate which you think might be fair? and i won't have you answer that now perhaps this will be a little teaser to listen to the whole podcast but perhaps we're just we can just plant that seed but then the reason i'm bringing it up now is i i i I thought to myself well i I wonder what he what i would say if dr bus turns that around on me and asks what criticism criticism i might have of the book and I would have to think more about that. Honestly, none really come to mind, but the, the only one I thought of, and this was when I was about halfway through the book, was that the title doesn't quite match the content. However, by the time I finished the book, I thought, second, I thought again about that because especially in the second half of the book, the title's a perfect match for the content. Yes. So, okay. We'll come back to that, but okay. what yeah, I, yeah,
1: do, I have some uh, thoughts on that, uh, which we happy to come back to that.
2: OK,
0: OK, well. Perhaps, yeah, I won't forget to come back to it, and I'm sure those thoughts won't, won't go away. So I want to share three quotes from the book that I think are great caveats. Two are from you, and one was you quoting Steven Pinker. And I just think that you, you know, it's important to kind of set say these things ahead of time. Qualifiers. The first is the quote you say, because of the profound differences within sex, so differences among men, differences among women, all statements about sex differences in this book carry the always necessary qualifier of on average. So this book fo- also focuses mostly, although not exclusively, on heterosexual women and men. We. We know a great deal scientifically about these populations, but there has been less research on conflicts among gay men and among lesbian women, among bisexuals and pansexuals, and among those across the rainbow of sexual identities and orientations. And so there's a critical need for research to fill this gap. So that's one important thing to acknowledge, both both the on average piece, and also that some of these dynamics don't necessarily apply to gay relationships. And then another quote that I think is particularly important is when you, be, when you begin discussing sexual coercion, you give this caveat. And I'll just say before I quote here, to look squarely into some of the darkest, more, most morally repugnant facets of human behavior is very difficult. And I think sometimes when we, begin to explain the worst of human behavior. Some people think that it sounds like a justification for that behavior, but of course it's not. And the only way that we'll ever outgrow the worst of our tendencies is by first and foremost, understanding them, understanding the roots of them. And that's really why I think this book is so important because you are, identifying some of the roots of the most morally repulsive behavior that humans carry out. So this quote goes like this, to say that there may be evolutionary influences on the probability of certain behaviors never says anything by itself about whether those behaviors are good or bad from a moral perspective. That is especially true in the context of sexually coercive behaviors, that are justly condemned for good reasons. And so great analogy in the same way that studying the multiple causes of cancer does not mean that one thinks cancer is a good thing, studying the multiple factors contributing to sexual coercion doesn't mean that sexual coercion is in any way acceptable. Identifying evolutionary origins of nefarious behavior in no way justifies or excuses it. And then right in that same vein, you quoted Steven Pinker who said, as soon as we recognize that there is nothing morally commendable about the products of evolution, we can describe human psychology honestly without the fear that identifying a natural trait is the same thing as condoning it. So just wanted to bring in those caveats. I think they're very important.
1: And thank you for for doing that i think they are important uh for uh you know prefacing and and reading the book appropriately exactly and 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 they're appropriate in part because there is the tendency as you know uh the naturalistic fallacy that people tend to jump from is to ought um uh, inappropriately and uh and this you know i mean this This is also true with, uh, I think it's especially true with evolutionary explanations, that there's this sense that somehow if something is evolutionary, we have to throw up our hands and it means it's inevitable and we can't change it, or that it provides some excuse uh, for bad behavior. And um, and it doesn't. I think that clearly separating is from the ought, the scientific understanding of causality from our morality uh, with respect to uh, bad behavior is, is extremely important. So I appreciate your pulling out those key quotes.
0: Absolutely, yes. Well, well, let's, let's dive in now to some of these hidden roots. There's a few things that I, you know, I, I think I kinda wanna just see if we can touch on a few things from the span of the whole book. And so the first one I thought we could start with is an explanation of the dark triad traits. Many of the explanations for the types of people and the reasons for why men engage in sexual coercion and harassment and assault often comes down to these dark triad traits. So can you explain for us what these traits are?
1: Yeah, uh, well this is, um, uh, these obviously didn't come from me. I I believe that uh, Del Paulus at the UBC um, was the first, or one of the first to to originate these, identify these. So the dark triad traits are personality traits, individual difference traits that are uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Uh, And very briefly, narcissism, uh is uh people who are high on narcissism tend to be self-absorbed they tend to have a grandiose sense of self uh they tend to have a sense of entitlement and in particular when it comes to men high is sexual entitlement um and uh and there and there are other facets there are different formulations of narcissism but those are some of the key elements um machiavellianism uh uh, the, the people high, high scores on Machiavellianism tend to be those who adopt an interpersonally exploitative social strategy mm. so so these would be people who view other people as objects to be manipulated for their own personal ends. Um, they might be uh, people uh, con men or uh, uh, People who, um, uh, yeah. So I think I think that interpersonally exploitative as a social strategy, and that's carried over into their mating life. And so they view a they adopt an interper- a, a sexually exploitative strategy when it comes to um, when it comes to mating. Psychopathy is is uh, is probably an unfortunate label, uh, be- but. Those who are high scorers tend uh, to—it's like they have their empathy circuit severed. Uh, They don't have any empathy for 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 victims. So, uh, I mean, one of the hallmarks is uh, people who uh, torture animals when they're children, light cats on fire, or or, you know, uh, laugh when a dog gets hit by a car. Uh, Really, uh, and and then of course, when it comes to people, uh, like zero empathy. And these are really bad dudes. And I I say bad dudes because there's a rather large sex difference in scores on on psychopathy. So even among those three traits, the largest sex difference is in in psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Men scoring typically much higher than women. Mm -hmm. Um, So so, so these are individual difference variables uh, that turn out to be and this is one of the new things, and it's a thread that I carry through, through the book with intimate partner violence, stalking, sexual coercion, et cetera, that, um, that these traits, especially when combined with uh, a short-term mating strategy tend to, be, tend to be predictive of those who engage in the, these nastier forms of, of sexual violence from sexual harassment all the way up through rape.
0: And this short-term mating strategy, perhaps that's self-explanatory for people, but what you're saying is that these are people who are interested in casual sex with no long-term investment to follow.
1: yes uh, yeah and so and, and so this is this is measured there well there are different measures, but Steve gangstead and Jeff Simpson originally designed they designed the first measure of what they call sociosexual orientation where the items uh, kind of capture it. Like, um, sex without love is okay. Um, I agree with that. Uh, if you're high on the short-term mating strategy, uh, or um, you know, I would have no trouble having sex with a variety of sex partners. Uh, I would like to have sex with a variety of sex partners, et cetera. So, um, and that's a very I consider personality a difference. You know, so there's no reason. Historically, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, this is a, a side a parenthetical comment, but in the field of personality psychology, uh, sexuality has tended to be neglected. So, even in the big taxonomies of personality, like the Big Five or the Hexago, uh, there are no dimensions of um, individual differences in sexual, sexuality. And um, Dave Schmidt and I, former students, now uh, Um, chair or head at uh, Brunel University in the the Evolution Cultural Program, uh, what we found is that there are something like seven dimensions of individual differences in the sexual sphere. Mm. And um, so I actually consider this dimension sort of the degree to which you pursue short-term mating uh, versus long-term mating, I consider it a personality variant Mm. because it tends to be stable over time. As much as other personality variables.
0: Interesting, right? Let's let's talk about some of the fundamental differences. And again, with the qualifier, on average, there are always exceptions. But some of the fundamental differences that essentially give rise to, as you describe it, the battle of the sexes. So, I, I'll just you know say before I hand the mic back to you. What really stood out to me, of course, one of the main differences is the desire for sexual variety, and you cite a variety of studies that all converge on the conclusion that men tend to desire sexual variety much more than women do. And you have a kind of hilarious, like in your TED talk, you refer to this in the book, you refer to this study which has been replicated where you have a man go up to women, strangers and ask them, would you like to have sex with me? And you have a woman ask strangers, would you like to have sex with me? A hundred percent of the women say no to those strange men and approximately 75% of the men say yes to the strange women. This is just, I mean, the epitome of a study that highlights fundamental differences between men and women's sexual psychology. So perhaps you can elaborate on why that is, evolutionarily speaking, why is it that men tend to seek greater variety? Why is it that women require much more investment of emotion and time and commitment before wanting to have intercourse? Perhaps you can just elaborate on on this.
1: Yeah. Um, well, well, you're you're absolutely right to highlight desire for sexual variety as a is one of the fundamental sex differences, and I think it's one of the ones that uh, causes the most mischief, if you will, when it comes to conflict between the sexes, and it shows up in a variety of ways. As you as you say, there's that that approaching total strangers on the on the street study, and and that. Uh, as you know, it has been replicated in I think half a dozen countries. Or now you can get women off the zero mark. By the way, uh, if you, if the guy is very attractive and charming, you can get three, four, five percent of women saying yes. Mm-hmm. But if the woman is very attractive, then you get up to eighty-five percent of the men saying yes. So um, so you know uh, uh, it's a very strong sex difference. But it also shows up in things like how much time. Uh, uh, you let elapse before seeking sex or consenting to sex. how much investment you want before seeking sex um, uh, even and even shows up in in the sorts of uh, pornography that males and females consume where uh, and sexual fantasy. so with men it's in you know, a variety of different women in their pornographic consumption and with women, it tends to be, male and female pornography is very different. So it tends to be with female pornography um, that is what appeals to the female sexual mind more emotion, more context, more buildup. up um, and, so, uh, and so this sex difference in, des- in desire for sexual variety shows up in a million different ways. And, and as you know, in, in psychology, there's a lot of discussion these days about replicability and magnitudes of effect which are very important topics but this is one that's highly replicable and shows a very large magnitude of effect uh, in fact uh, it's one of the largest psychological sex differences that's ever been discovered um, so um, uh, so why does it exist well from an evolutionary perspective it, it really boils down to fundamental differences uh, or asymmetries in parental investment. So if if you take the simplest case, what is the minimum investment a man versus a woman has to put in to produce a single child? For uh, men, it's one act of sex. Uh, For women, it's nine months uh, of uh, heavy metabolic uh, expenditure, uh, opportunity costs, and so forth. Uh, and so what that means is that, uh, and, and this really started with sexual reproduction. So most people don't know this, but I, at the beginning of the book, I even sort of start with that as a basic, that sexual reproduction itself, we take it for granted, but we evolved from asexual species where there was just one sex mothers and they produced daughters that were genetically identical to themselves. At some point, uh, estimates vary maybe a a billion or 1.3 billion years ago, sexual reproduction evolved. And so once it started to evolve, what it evolved is uh, in the direction of one sex being more investing than the other. Uh, And uh, so so what that means is the high investing sex becomes the most valuable sex from a reproductive standpoint and this, the lower the lower investing sex becomes more competitive with members their own sex for access to the high investing sex. So um, uh, so another way of putting it. So looking at it like from a female lens, uh, given that they put this high investment in, that's obligatory. So a woman can't say, "I'm very invested in my career right now. I really only want to put in three and a half months in this pregnancy." No, it's it's just part of a reproductive biology, um, And so it's obligatory in that sense. And um, what that means, though, is that the costs of making a bad sexual decision are much steeper for women than for men. Um, but in the extreme case, I'll say man and woman hook up one night, they, they have a few too many drinks. they fall into bed, they have sex. They wake up the next morning and the guy says oh i made a terrible mistake i really didn't want to have sex with this woman i shouldn't have had sex with her um you know and departs well and woman let's say wakes up and realizes it has exactly the same reaction well the cost to her can be very severe if she gets pregnant then she's gotten pregnant in an untimely fashion by a guy that she has not chosen as a long-term committed partner uh and then Uh, And then, uh, and then even things like sexually transmitted diseases, women are more vulnerable to them than men due to the nature of um, our uh, reproductive apparatus. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
1: And so, and so one way of putting it is that the costs of making a bad sexual decision are steeper for women than for men, and conversely, the benefits of making a good sexual decision are much greater for women than for men. since this is a theory of relative investment, it's very important. This is Trevor's 1972, a very important modification or elaboration of Darwin's theory of sexual selection. Uh, it's very important to keep in mind that men typically do more than the minimum, uh, And uh, in long-term committed mateships, uh, both sexes are investing heavily and so both sexes uh, are extremely choosy, and both sexes uh, experience heavy costs of making a bad mating decision. So, so what I'm talking about here with this desire for sexual variety comes into play mostly in shorter-term mating contexts. Mm. Although it gets complicated when you have deception about which mating strategy an individual is going to pursue. Um, and so, um, and so that that's basically the you know. One, one way, some people capture this by saying, sperm are cheap, eggs are expensive. Uh, and that's a bit of an oversimplification, but in a, in a very brief phrase, kind of captures the, the asymmetry in, in, in investment. Um, and it's that asymmetry that investment in investment is ultimately responsible for the sex difference. So looking at now from the male's perspective, the payoff, Of a short-term mating strategy uh, tends to be much greater uh, for those men who can successfully implement short-term mating strategy. Um, Or or mating, I should say, I shouldn't say short-term mating strategy exclusively. I should say the reproductive payoff historically has been greater for men who gain sexual access to a variety of women, Mm because their reproductive um, uh, ceiling is much higher than it is for women. And so, and so that applies to short term mating, but also applies to kings, despots, uh, princes, uh, presidents who can attract multiple mates, uh, et cetera. Uh, so um, uh, whereas, so uh, another way of saying the same thing is that adding additional sex partners Historically, yielded higher reproductive payoff for men than for women. For women, from their perspective, adding additional sex partners doesn't increase their reproductive rate. You know, Mm -hmm. unless they're unless their partners uh, uh, infertile. And so, what you have is you have this basic sex difference in the reproductive payoff of sexual strategies, iterated generation after generation after generation. And what has evolved is a male sexual psychology that is fundamentally different from female sexual psychology mm. uh, uh, and um, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll pause pause there uh, on that point point.
0: and so what's interesting to me to think about and, and you do bring this up in the book is the way that there are certain things above all birth control that to some degree changes changes the game a little bit so if a woman is taking birth control, and it's 98% effective, she is granted the freedom to have to seek greater sexual variety without necessarily incurring the costs that she would have if every one of those encounters possibly led to a pregnancy. But my takeaway or my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is even though, you know, we've had birth control for what, maybe 50 years, I think, or a little more and a little bit more than that. Yeah. So, but, so that, that being quite novel in the big picture and it's okay. So what I think what I'm, what I'm asking is do the instincts that have been ingrained by evolution persist, even in these modern times with these new technologies, or to what degree can a woman kind of override that evolutionary programming and yeah. and choose and, and just kind of act differently than all of her ancestors ever did
1: yeah that's a great question, and to some degree it's an open question in that we we don't fully know the answer to it um we We know the partial answer at this point point. Uh, and that is that um uh I think it's very difficult to override desires. So you can prevent the expression of desire in behavior, but it's very difficult to override the fundamental desires that we uh, that are part of our evolved sexual psychology. So one one uh, in a slightly different context, one comment that a male made to me is after reading my book, The Evolution of Desire, he said that um that reading the book helped him to stay faithful to his wife because when he found himself attracted to other women he used to interpret that as oh that must mean i don't love my wife whereas once he realized that he had this evolved desire for sexual rights said oh that's my evolved desire for sexual variety that doesn't mean i don't love my wife i still love my wife and so that caused him to um be more sexually faithful to his partner and so in a sense he He was able to override it with another desire, desire Mm. to preserve his Mm. long-term committed relationship. So, um, you know, when it comes to novel technologies like birth control, it is an open question, but with the advent of birth control, once it became very popular, uh, so it it was invented around 1960 or so, and then became widespread later in the 60s and into the 70s, and that coincided with what was called the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that there was a cultural movement to engage in short-term mating, short-term sex. And uh, and it also coincided with a sex ratio imbalance, I should say, where there's a surplus of women in the mating pool, which causes the mating system to shift more toward short-term mating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened was that women would engage in short-term mating, uh, that is, more women would. Some women always have. Uh, more women did, but they didn't feel good about it. Uh, they were more likely to, and studies have subsequently found this, including one that I co-authored with uh, with some other uh, psychologists, that women are more likely to experience sexual regret, uh, you know, after a brief sexual encounter, uh, more likely to, uh, in college studies of hookups. Uh, women are more likely when you ask, what is your ideal outcome of this hookup? Women are more likely to say my ideal outcome would be uh, a relationship developing from this uh, hookup. Uh, when you ask men the question, they're more likely to say my ideal outcome would be that it leads to more hookups that is more casual sex. So, uh, so I think even though it is true that women, women do have control, at least in the Western cultures where they have easy access to birth control technology. They can, as you say, um, basically eliminate what would have been a very costly uh, endeavor that is getting pregnant with the man that they didn't want to get pregnant with in an untimely way. Uh, and, uh, and now the, uh, they, they don't suffer those costs, but the mating, their desires for a uh, relationship, for commitment, for investment on the part of the guy still persist even mm-hmm. in the modern times. That's with most women, not all. There are, you know, uh, all studies show, including my own, that there is a minority of women who do pursue uh, short term mating with uh, alacrity, uh, if you will perhaps 10, maybe 15% of women, Mm -hmm. and who enjoy it and feel no regret and no compunction, et cetera. And that's this gets back to your initial point about the on average. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um one one other reflection of this uh, is that which which I thought was really a fascinating thing, so one, one other cultural invention is online dating sites, and one of the online dating sites originating in Canada is called ashleymadison.com and their motto is, and you, you can look this up. their motto is "Life is short, have an affair." Uh, and uh, it's a very popular um, dating website, but it's basically for people who are married or in committed relationships who want to have some sex on the side. But when some hackers hacked it, they were, some hackers were upset that uh, when they requested that their profiles be deleted from this dating site, Ashley Madison claimed to delete it, but in fact, didn't delete the the personal profiles. And so they basically said, you know, you better, um, comply with our wishes or we're going to release information about the users of this uh, website. And when they released information, it turned out that so I can't remember the exact statistics I mentioned them in the book, but the overwhelming majority of people on the site were men. And many of the women on the site actually were fake bots uh, of photo attractive women with fake profiles. Uh, and, and again, that's a kind of reflection of its uh, they a sex difference in desire for sexual variety.
0: Uh, that I hadn't heard of that event and and those hackers, as you said, ended up, you know, they threatened the company that will release the names of the people on this site if you don't delete our profiles. Right. The company didn't delete their profiles. And so the hackers actually released the names and made yeah. that public information. And of course, many people were caught. Um, yes. And, and yeah, that, that, I mean, honestly, pretty, um pretty clever on the makers of that site to create a bunch of fake female profiles, because otherwise it would have been, if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like 22,000 men on the site and around a thousand or so women, I might be slightly wrong, yeah, yeah. but that was approximately the ratio of real users. So yeah. the site had to create a bunch of fake female profiles to give men the impression that there was actually a fair shot at meeting somebody. Right. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about sexual deception. And I think it relates to what we've been talking about so far. And I wanna hear you elaborate. And I'll just share that one of my takeaways is that a common Strategy that men use, particularly those who are interested in these short-term mating strategies who, who carry that out. One of the ways in which that they deceive women is by essentially feigning interest in a longer-term relationship. Yes. Giving all of the social cues, like the attentiveness, the interest in the woman's personal life, etc., that give the impression that they are interested in a long term relationship when in fact they're only interested in a short term relationship. So this is one form of sexual deception. Perhaps you can elaborate on that if you'd like and and share a couple others.
1: Yeah, well, well, it's interesting. I mean, in in a way, it gets back to that early, you know, uh, sex with strangers study of, you know, would you have sex with me? Um, That if men come right out and we even show this in our studies in a study I did a while back at a, a singles bar, where I mean, the more sexually explicit men are in their initial signals, uh, the more it backfires. Mm. So, it, in essence, men who want a long term mating strategy give those signals of commitment, investment. Uh, men who are just in short term also give those signals of commitment mm. and investment uh, because women are generally not turned on by men who just say, hi, I've been noticing you around, let's have sex. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so yes, men deceive women uh, on that, uh, and women, of course, are not oblivious to that. They're at least somewhat aware, and they've evolved tactics for uh, seeing through the deception. And and one of the things they do to um, see through the deception is they impose a longer courtship so you expand that length of time, partly to carry out a deception over a longer period of time. And that longer period of time, courtship allows women to identify other information. Mm-hmm. This guy married is in a relationship. Um, nowadays, they can, they can Google his name or look up, you know, and sometimes they find out he's married, has three kids or, or ha- has two wives and three kids. Um, so um, uh, yes. And and of course, women deceive men uh, as well. So sometimes women do the the flip Mm -hmm. of that. That is, they they give signals that they are interested in short-term casual sex when they're really interested in a long-term relationship. And so sometimes uh, do what I call uh, infiltrate the man's psychology Uh, to the point where one day he wakes up and realizes he can't live without her and he's in a long-term relationship and initially he thought "Oh, this was just a casual hookup Mm. Uh, and so and so both sexes do it and of course both sexes deceive about the qualities that the other wants in a in a potential mate and so if you look at uh, so there are studies of that i summarize in the book of um, deception and online dating profiles where Men will do things like exaggerate their status and income, exaggerate their height. Um, uh, also they, they put in things like uh, sincere, trustworthy, looking for the right, the, the right woman, you know, they give off all these cues to long-term committed mating. And women uh, deceive by typically shaving off, on average, about 15 pounds off their weight uh, and both sexes are deceived by posting photographs that are uh, sometimes older, or let me put it this way, not fully representative of what they actually look like. Mm. Uh, and so, so this deception runs both ways,
2: mm-hmm. and in
1: predictable ways. You can predict it from both mating strategy, and you can predict it from sex differences in the qualities that men and women are, are looking for in potential mates.
0: So speaking of that right there, the qualities that men and women are looking for in potential mates, I think this is another fundamental difference in the sexual psychology of men and women. And you you use the term a lot, mate value and overall desirability. You know, and and this is it's it's good because it, of course, entails much more than physical attractiveness. And perhaps for women especially, it entails more than physical attractiveness. So can you talk about some of the differences in how males versus females assess mate value? Yes,
1: sure. Um, Well, so uh, first I should say that the mate value, you know, refers to um, consensual or or agreed, agreed upon valuable qualities in a potential mate. And there is some consensus about, you know, who is in the American system, and they have this in European systems as well. These are kind of this person's an eight, this person's a six, this person's a ten, et cetera. There, there, there's a fair amount of consensus about overall mate value, but there are also individual differences in um, what you find valuable. So some people, let's say, are into music or literature or. You know Russian poetry or whatever, and so some there are individual differences in exactly what people value, but there's also consensus. So the mate value refers generally in this context to consensual mate value, and and there are sex and generally people seek those that are within their mate value range. So uh, if you are uh, a six, then it's not a good strategy to go after an eight because you have a lower likelihood of successfully attracting the aid, uh, And also, if you, even if you do in the short term, the aid is more likely to dump you or to be sexually unfaithful to you. Um, our studies have, have found that. But there are, you're absolutely right. There are sex differences in the qualities that men and women want in a long-term mate, and some in a short-term mate, although there's more convergence in short-term mating centering on physical attractiveness, that is physical attractiveness becomes really primary in short-term mating context. But in long-term, women are more likely to value uh, men who have resources, men who have social status, men who are ambitious, have drive, uh, and have a slightly older age, and have the qualities that are likely to lead to status and resource acquisition over time. Also, accused of protection. So, is the guy physically fit? Um, is he uh, brave in the face of danger? You know, is he going to be a good provider, a good protector? Is he willing to be a good provider and a good mm-hmm. protector in addition to the ability? There's ability and willingness. Uh, and then men value, and this won't shock or surprise anyone, but my 37 culture study initially documented this that men value physical appearance, physical attractiveness, good looks more than women do in the long-term mate, and also relative youth, that is men typically value uh, women who are younger than they are, women value men who are a bit older than they are, and, um, and then this changes over time. So um, And so that's why, again, getting back to the deception issue, people will deceive on precisely those sex linked qualities that are, that are desired uh, in the opposite sex.
0: Mm. What would you say to people i can imagine that some people feel that and i know you know this so i'm not i know you know this but that putting a number on my mate value feels like a reductive in a sense a reductionistic like you're reducing me down to a mere number or (laughs) and then the people who would also say you know like i'm a married man my wife is a very beautiful woman, and also her mind is one of the most attractive qualities. Her her intelligence, her wit, her humor. So, just what you know, what would you say to that inevitable pushback? On
1: well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, well, well, first of all, you know what I. What I responded to is your question about what are the sex differences. Mm. There, are, there are also similarities between the sexes along mm. precisely those lines. So intelligence is one of the things that's most valued by both sexes in a long-term mate, as well as things like kindness, emotional stability, good health, and so forth. Mm. Uh, similar political views, similar religious views. Uh, and so there, there are many things that go into mate value other than the sex differentiated elements of it. So what I highlighted was just the sex differentiated elements. And so yes, and 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 as I said, there are individually different elements as well. And so um, you know, some people are into sports, and other people find sports boring. So mm-hmm. um, and so if you are into sports, then. Someone who finds sports boring might be lower in mate value to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so there are those individual difference components to it. And um, and yes, I mean the you know people uh, you know don't like being reduced to, to a number, and, and 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 it is reductive in some uh, in some sense. But the fact is, it, it, mate value is not democratically distributed. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, you know the all uh, men are created equal. Um, All men and women are created equal uh, and they should be in the eyes of the law and in terms of rights and so forth. But the harsh reality is that they're not in terms of mate value people. Some people are more desirable than others, you know, in the collective view. And so uh, you can, you know, I I don't know who the, the modern versions of this would be. Uh, Ryan Gosling, maybe, or, I mean, it used to be Brad Pitt or George Clooney, but these are, these are guys who are a bit older now, uh, you know, and then, you know, Scarlett Johansson and um, um, blocking on her name. Uh, who, who's the woman, she's a superb actress who played uh, the leading role of uh, uh, in the Tanya Harding movie? Oh, what's her name?
0: I know there's some listeners who are screaming it right now. I'm yeah, forgetting as well. Forgetting as but, well. Maybe it'll come to us.
2: Margot Robbie.
0: There you go. Perfect. That's yeah. it, Margo yeah. Robbie. Excuse,
1: that's, excuse that's, me. You. So, 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 if, if if you or I were to, let's say, uh, go up to Margot Robbie and say, you know, I think you know we're about equivalent mate value. Let's go out. Um, my guess is we'd have trouble.
0: Uh, speak, speak for yourself here. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So ah, just um, kidding. But, I, I totally get it. You're right.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's, uh, I haven't, I'll mention one with a humorous anecdote where, you know, I do this study, I teach an undergraduate class in psychology of human mating. And one of the things I ask is, is to women in the class, I say, what do women want in a mate? And one of the things they say is I want a mate who's, very generous with his resources. And so I say, so like a guy who um, takes his paycheck every month and then goes to all the this, the street winos uh, who are hanging out in the homeless again, gives us all those pay- She no, not that generous, you know, generous with me. Uh, and so, but that kind of highlights also that the winos uh, who are living on the street are not viewed by women as as high in mate value as a value as a steady job
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and so uh, you know we, we you know which makes sense I mean all sexually reproducing species have mate preferences mm-hmm. and it would be bizarre if if they didn't because mating is one of the most important decisions you can possibly make in your life I mean it affects everything uh, from the the children you have to the you know your social status to the your your in your future income to your longevity, everything uh, is affected by that single decision of who you mate with, uh, and so we have evolved as a sexually reproducing species. Very articulate uh, mate preferences, and uh, and those that are enacted. And what that means is it results in you could say discrimination. People who are lower in mate value are discriminated against. Uh, it doesn't qualify for the uh, you know any of the um, uh, it's not in any of the protected categories, uh, but um, but it's, it's, it's a harsh fact of life. It is.
0: Right. Yes. Well, this c- perhaps is a good is a good segue. And I, I knew that when I made the decision to try to cover many different topics within the book, to some degree, I was trading breadth for depth, you know, because any one of these topics, I feel like could be a whole conversation unto itself. Yeah. So. So you know, although there's much more to say about that, perhaps now we can we can talk about um, intimate partner violence and and spend the rest of our time focusing even more on why men behave badly, specifically, so harassment, unwanted sexual attention, sexual coercion, and then even rape, but specifically starting with intimate partner partner violence so can you talk to us about the profile of... So first of all, as we've already established, there's this dramatic asymmetry statistically in terms of who is perpetrating this type of violence and it's overwhelmingly men.
1: Yeah, So, the, the, the extreme violence is. So, right. so some have argued that, um, that there's more of a gender symmetry, you know, in committing acts of, of violence. And sometimes what will happen is when a fight breaks out, like let's say a guy slaps the woman or hits his his partner, she will hit him back. And so there'll be this kind of, um, you know, uh, what seems like a symmetry uh, in intimate partner violence. And some say, and and there are some men who are victims of intimate partner Mm -hmm. violence, Uh, but the more extreme you get when you talk about actual injury and who's gonna land in the hospital, who's gonna end up with a, a, a black eye, the more extreme the violence, the more the asymmetry exists where males mm. are the more extreme perpetrators and females mm. the victims.
0: Mm. Can you talk to us about the type of male or the type of relationship dynamic that gives rise to intimate partner violence?
1: Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, as, as you know, I devote a full chapter to this uh, problem of intimate partner violence and, and it is and it is a problem. Um, and, uh, there are several things that, that are involved with it. And one is the one topic we just talked about when there's a mate value discrepancy. And, uh, often what will happen is, uh, a man will get into a relationship with a woman who is in fact higher in mate value. And sometimes it occurs with an older man and a much younger woman before she's entered the mating market and had time to accurately assess her own mate value. Uh, and so over time though, they get into this relationship and then over time, she realizes that she's higher in mate value or that this is, um, not a good relationship. Uh, And so men in that context, when there's a mate value discrepancy, that's one of the predictors.
2: And I'll just Uh, jump in super quickly
0: and say, I also think it's important to highlight your point that mate value is not static. So it's even possible perhaps that initially mate value is. It could congruence, but then over time there's a discrepancy that develops because mate value
1: changes. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. That mate, nothing nothing in mate value is static over time. I mean it changes with uh job promotions, it changes with age, it changes with health status, it changes with um all kinds of things. Uh and so yes, an initially um uh, uh assorted make value couple can become discrepant over time and mm-hmm. in fact you could say the odds of um a couple not being uh discordant on make value is very it, it, the, the odds of them being discordant is very high and the odds mm-hmm. of them being remaining identical over time as they as they go through life is very very low mm-hmm. uh, but you know we that's that's part of what love and commitment are all about is that we do stay with people and remain committed to them um, but um, another predictor of intimate partner violence is guys who, so mate value is one, but guys who lack uh, the resources or benefits to provide to women that are part of mate guarding or mate retention efforts. So mate retention is the term that I prefer, and as a, to the two generic strategies of mate retention are you provide benefits to the person. You provide love. You provide attention. You provide resources. Uh, you you make sacrifices for the person. And then the other is cost infliction. You can get people to do things you want them to do by inflicting costs or threatening to inflict costs. Um, and so, and as humans, we we use both sets of tactics. Unfortunately, but those who lack the benefits to provide. Uh, sometimes resort to the cost-inflicting tactics. And it's very insidious because one of the consequences of intimate partner violence is is it undermines women's self-esteem. And to some degree, at least there's some evidence that self-esteem tracks mate value. So if you feel bad about yourself, you also feel you're not very desirable as a mate. If you feel good about yourself, you feel you are desirable as a mate. And uh, getting beaten up um, does harm women's self-esteem. And so, um, and so unfortunately, it's a tragedy. I think that's actually one of the functions of it. That is to get the woman to believe that she can't do better elsewhere on the mating market. Hmm. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, a, it's a very insidious tactic Uh, But unfortunately, as as I mentioned, I think at the very beginning of our discussion, uh, race varies from culture to culture, but uh, Canada, 20%, United States, it's around 30% lifetime prevalence of being a victim of intimate partner violence for women. Uh, Even in the uh, relatively sexually egalitarian cultures of Scandinavia, Sweden and Norway, it also hovers around that 27%. Uh, So that's a substantial number of of, of female victims of intimate partner violence. So there hasn't been a huge amount of press about it. Uh, But interestingly, there's been a bit more lately due to the pandemic, because Mm -hmm. what we saw in the pandemic was a spike in rates of intimate partner violence. Because uh, women are um, uh, either women who are in the process of breaking up with their partner are sometimes stuck living with that partner, Uh, or, or, you know, due to the pandemic and and lockdowns in certain countries, women are forced to live with their abuser and they can't can't get out of it. And so there's been a a, a spike now, of course, economic hardship uh, is another causal factor in all this. And there's, you know, due to unemployment, you know, again, not having the benefits to provide that could be part of it uh, as well, part of the spike. There's been a bit more of a tension to intimate partner violence as a consequence of the rise during the pandemic.
2: Mm.
0: It's devastating, the statistics. And as you point out, we really don't even know how high those might be given how few intimate partner, like domestic violence situations are actually reported. So many go unreported. So perhaps just It just feels right to say that if anyone, if any woman is listening now who has been a victim of this or a survivor of this, um, my deep compassion. And I hope that hope that understanding the psychology of it is actually helpful. And perhaps this is the right moment to talk about some of the defenses against intimate partner violence. You talk about this in the book. One that really stood out to me is the coalition of alliances. Yes. The way that when a woman is surrounded by kin and male friends and female friends, too, and people who can come to her backup, um, that can dramatically reduce the victimization
1: in this yeah. way. I think that's actually the most important one. We I call them uh, bodyguards,
2: bodyguards. So
1: social allies, and they could be female friends, male friends uh, and kin. So brothers, fathers. Uh, you know, and so forth, uh, these social bodyguards are extremely important, both in deterrence and in responding to. Yes. Uh, so uh, a guy, a uh, uh, husband or boyfriend is going to think twice if this woman has four strong brothers or, or an ally, ship a coalition of females who is going to impose reputational damage on him for engaging in the violent violence. And, one of the, And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it's also spiking during the pandemic is that many women don't have that coalition of allies that can deter and defend against uh, intimate partner violence.
2: Right.
0: A devastating symptom of general isolation. Yeah. I mean, it, it just feels like it's so human, so natural to be surrounded by allies. And our society's kind of deviated from that, perhaps somewhat natural social structure.
1: in yeah, that ways. yeah, yeah. I think I think so. With with isolated nuclear families, right, um, right. it has uh, deviated from that. And one of the things I should also mention is that one of the uh, kind of um, uh, underhanded or, or insidious is the word I'm looking for insidious tactics that these abusers use is they try to cut off their partner's relationships with their friends and their family. Um, And they, and again, that seems specifically designed to cut off
2: the bodyguards
1: Mm. uh, and isolate the woman so that her, uh, so that he becomes her only social, social uh, alliance, so to speak. Right. So
2: perhaps it's it's
1: it's very insidious and yeah, horrible, uh, but we need to understand it.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so perhaps it's fair to say that the men who are most likely to perpetrate intimate partner violence are those who score high in the dark triad traits, these narcissistic, psychopathic, manipulative men who are with someone whose mate value is higher than their own, which they recognize, and who perhaps also, um, there's just this general fear that, that the person's, that the woman's irreplaceable to them, that, that if she leaves, yeah. they'll never find someone of that level of mate value. And so with the whole, you know, cutting her self-esteem down, it's like they create this illusion that the mate value is more of a match than it really is. You manipulate her perception um, of herself to basically reduce it down to being of the same mate value as you.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. It's perfectly well captured Mm -hmm. and and it's uh, it's it's very insidious. So, yeah, it's a combination of um, Relationship factors having to do with mate value, social circumstances, and personality characteristics captured by the dark triad. Mm. So it's that confluence of things, and mm. it's one of the things that I try to highlight in the book is that you know people often search for single variable explanations for things, and you know social life is more complex than that. And so uh, this is at least an attempt to identify both the you know, the, the mate value, the relationship, the personality, individual differences, and the social circumstances, all of which converge to uh, increased probability of, in this case, in partner violence.
2: Hmm.
0: Let's carry this, because some of these dynamics carry over into the types of men and situations where sexual coercion and harassment and rape comes about. Yeah. One thing that I thought was very interesting in the book is just kind of just unwanted sexual attention, perhaps the first degree of harassment and just the way that men's brains respond to beautiful women
1: and the way that
0: that literally, you know, you use the word uh, the term attention adhesion to that that our men's brains are rewarded we reward ourselves for looking at a beautiful woman as shown in fmri studies and that that's fascinating to me in and of itself and then that of course so it's just interesting to think about like what what are the evolutionary explanations of that does it relate to Sexual variety, essentially.
1: Well, um, I think that you know, in the, in this case, it's it's that men's sexual psychology has evolved, it, which is housed in the brain, uh, has evolved to be hyper attentive to um, to women who are physically attractive and who give off cues to fertility. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, men don't think about it; they don't think, "Oh, this is a fertile woman," therefore. I can't help staring at her, mm-hmm. uh, but they are, uh, as you said, this is a work by John Maynard who uh, did this brilliant work on the attentional adhesion and finds that you know, men have difficulty detaching from that uh, stares, you know, which women experience as uncomfortable staring or ogling or uh, leering or um, whatever. Uh, and and the, in the we have a brain circuit called the nucleus accumbens, which is a reward circuit. That when men see photographs of attractive women or attractive women in person, they we experience a, a little of pleasure. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, we do. That's that's kind of where where it starts. Um, but again, I think this is important to distinguish between desire and behavior. Mm-hmm. You know? So. Um, if, if all desires were automatically translated into behavior, we would live in a very chaotic society. Right. Uh, and so um, some men, and this gets to your question about sexual harassment, sexual coercion, uh, some men um, act on their, on their desires. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess another one that I point out in the book that is also linked to uh, sexual harassment and some other forms of sexual violence is the male sexual misperception bias Um, that is um, men when a woman smiles at a man this is the the classic case woman smiles at a man and thinks oh she's interested in me and from her perspective now she's just being friendly or polite or or even nervous some people smile when they get nervous uh, and um uh, and what we found in our lab study we did a kind of speed dating lab study this is with Karen Hurley who spearheaded this that um, that men who are high on narcissism are especially like especially vulnerable to the sexual overperception bias and so mm-hmm. um, they it, it, and then the women uh, who are quote, victims tend to be physically attractive okay that are those men more vulnerable to the sexual over-sexual bias with attractive women, which is a bit ironic given that statistically, these are women who are least likely to reciprocate that desire on average. Right. right. Um, so, but, but part of the reason that this leads to sexual harassment, or is one variable that is contributing to sexual harassment is that some men genuinely think, oh, she is giving, sending me sexual signals, you know, she, and so I'm merely responding reciprocally to the sexual signals that she's sending. And, um, and then of course, then that results in sexual harassment. Yeah. And, but it is also the case. And this is a point that I make in the book that, uh, not all men do it. Right. You know, again, there are profound individual differences. Uh, and it's not that men who don't do it, don't experience a, an attraction or a desire but they don't they don't act on it and the men who are more likely to act on it are high in the dark triad traits and they tend to be serial harassers mm. so you uh, i i've interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of women in different uh occupations and the absolute consensus is, is they know who the who to watch out for mm. you know it's like there's a particular guy in the workplace who tends to harass multiple women Mm. Uh, and the same is true of sexual coercion. By the way, uh, they, they tend there tend to be serial sexual coercion, s- serial rapists. So uh, a smaller number of guys are committing uh, a majority of the crimes of harassment and coercion. Mm. Uh, and so that's why it's important. Even in, in, in a way, that's that's why I kind of like the title of my book: "When Men Behave Badly." And uh, because it's not all men, and it's not all men in all circumstances.
2: Right, right.
0: On that note, um, you you address the idea that some people have floated that all men are potential rapists, and to someone like me, that that doesn't sit well at all because I can genuinely say i've literally never had such an impulse and i'm i'm I, my it's like i have this revolt inside myself to even begin like there's a moment i think when you refer to a study where people had men fantasize about assaulting a woman and it's like i i, I can't even begin to go there in my mind and i'm not virtue signaling right now this is just very honest so what would you say to this? What would you say to this idea that all men have within them some impulse to rape?
1: Yeah. Well, in a way, I mean, I have I have a couple of different thoughts on it and, and I explore some of these. Um, I think one answer is that we don't know. We don't know the answer with conclusive certainty. Um, yeah. uh, and the reason that I say that is because you you have to put people in the right situation uh, in order to really gauge. So it's sometimes, it, it, in the situation that I'm thinking of is warfare. Mm-hmm. So if you are in a, in a war, you're in a small uh, intergroup warfare and you've just vanquished the males in the enemy group and there are these females there who are, who are vulnerable without bodyguards, um, would you, in that circumstance, engage in rape? Uh, well, we don't know the answer to that, uh, but I suspect that your intuitions are correct that there are very profound individual differences, uh, that that some men, um, it doesn't matter uh, how vulnerable the women, how low the costs, uh, we just would never do it. It would violate their moral sensibil- sensibilities, mm-hmm. um, uh, even if they had the impulse, and many wouldn't have the impulse, that is, a, that is my intuition. Uh, but nonetheless, it is true that in the circumstances, I mean, rape in warfare, it, rape is one of the most predictable consequences of warfare. Uh, in warfare throughout history, uh, in just about every place where there's been warfare is that there's, uh, there's sexual violence. But it's probably the case, again, we don't have studies on this, that not all men, not all these soldiers are engaging in it. It might be a subset of men who are more likely to engage in it. And based on the data that we do know, uh, it's probably those high dark triad men who are most likely to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, good, po- good point. And yeah, I just, you know, you already said it, but it, I just think it's worth emphasizing again, like this this dark triad com- com- uh, combination and the behaviors that that can give way to and specifically with that that selfish narcissistic sense of entitlement that uh, like leaks into the sexual sphere right. i just think that's such a significant dynamic these men thinking that somehow they're entitled to access to this woman's body and that her permission is just not a big factor right. it's it's just worth
1: Emphasize especially, yeah, especially combined with the low empathy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. I don't care what she feels like. It's mm. what all about me. It's mm. what I feel like, according to the narcissist.
2: Hmm.
0: So what? What? Defense. Well, actually, okay. Two things. One, highlighting another thing you already said: the male sexual overperception bias. Right. This tendency to think that she's interested in me when she's not. And then that also tends to lead as you talk about to interpreting these sort of soft rejections, as not really a rejection as maybe even sometimes playful, or just taking it at face value. Oh, she said she's busy tonight. So she doesn't want to go on a date with me. So she's probably busy tonight. And I should ask her about tomorrow night, that type of thing. Um, So so although the responsibility solely lies on men when it comes to preventing coercion, harassment, assault, and all this, what can women do to minimize the possibility of being a victim of this?
1: Yeah, of of sexual harassment?
0: Of of sexual harassment, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, I think there are a couple things. One one is that uh, uh, in instituting clear and enforceable sexual harassment policies is the first one. Mm. Uh, you know, making people aware, and I think this is occurring, I and mean, it's happening in my university, it's happening in other uh, workplace environments that, um, that, uh, that it won't. So, so there's policy, enforceable policy, there's setting up a social norm. Um, that this is unacceptable behavior. So, and that requires, and this is why men are so critical in addition to women in eliminating this behavior. So, it's, so men who observe that should no longer tolerate it as well. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in my workplace at uh, the University of Texas, just very recently, like within a matter of the last, um, I said, within the last year. We've instituted a policy at my university where if you observe sexual harassment, then you are obligated to report it. Mm. Uh, So so if you observe it and don't report it, you could actually be fired from your job. And so um, now some people might think this is going too far, uh, but, but so I think policy, social norms, enlisting both males and females, men and women, uh, to adopt these social norms um, uh, and then also there's the issue of bodyguards. you know bodyguards are critical in intimate partner violence preventing it and they're also critical in preventing workplace harassment. so um, bodyguards in this case might be co-workers um, and uh, uh, you know and and many women now do have the uh, the ability to report and with the third party observers reporting sexual harassment, that also has the advantage of taking the sole burden off of the victim. Mm. Uh, So previously it was really the victim of sexual harassment who had the sole responsibility for dealing with it in one way or another, but this way with third party observers there, that sole burden is somewhat lifted. Now this is workplace harassment, there's also sexual harassment in other contexts that Rock concerts at uh, parties at fraternity houses and and so forth and and that's that I I think some of the same principles apply there you know having body parts is really critical.
2: Mm.
0: A lot of the energy behind men who do this appears to be just basic sexual arousal. I've also heard the argument that more than seeking sexual pleasure, rapists in particular, and beyond just harassment, but actual rape, are motivated by power and control. So if it were simply sexual arousal, to me, that almost seems like a somewhat simpler solution. I mean, you could almost just, it's weird to say this, but you could almost just encourage men like that to just masturbate more often and curb their arousal and reduce the intensity of their desire a little bit. But when it comes to desire for power and control, how can we how can we address that in men, men who want to have control over women and want to have established power over them? Yeah, what's the right response?
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting question, a great question, and a very complicated one that I don't think we'll have time to get, get into that in, in great detail, but I'll, I'll just say one or two things uh, about it, and that, that is that there, there has been this um, uh, dogma might be too strong, but a, um, a, a belief that rape is all about power uh, and has nothing to do with sex. And, um, and I think it's a bit of a naive view uh, in the sense that, um, first of all, a lot of behavior is multi-determined. So there's no reason why it has to be about one or the other. It could be about both. Um, and I think sometimes it is about both. Um, and, uh, and in a way, this kind of, um, I think that this kind of singular focus on the power has led to a, an impoverished view of the causal understanding behind this. So, uh, so, so I, I wouldn't say necessarily sexual arousal per se, although that's sometimes involved. And there's a very disturbing study that I report in the book by Dan Ariely and George Lowenstein about when men are sexually aroused, they report that they're more willing to spike a woman's drink and get her drunk or keep persisting in sex even after she says no. So I think sexual arousal uh, is is part of the causal picture. And it relates to the fact, another interesting um, point which I think is relevant, which we've touched on in other contexts, is that it's very difficult to study these things in a kind of cold laboratory setting where you're really not in the situation Mm-hmm. where you might engage in it. So most of us have never been in a wartime situation where we vanquished the opposing group and then have women who are left without bodyguards. Um, uh, and, and so of course, as you know, it's very difficult to conduct psychological studies that genuinely put people in these you know, uh, studies with high similitude. And and so, um, what people and one of the interesting things about that Riele and Lowenstein study is that uh, Mm -hmm. men who are not sexually aroused report very low likelihoods of spiking a woman's drink and, you know, persisting in sex. And um, it's one of the few studies that actually did put men in a high sexual arousal situation. Found pretty dramatic results. Uh, which we've replicated, by the way, recently in our in our laboratory. Courtney Crosby, one of my current students, spearheaded um, that study.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so, um, um, so okay. Your original question just getting back to it had to do with the the role of power uh, and and, uh, and and dealing with that. You know, I think that um, I actually think that it's. It, it's not clear the degree to which power is a motivation when it comes to rape. Um, it, it, it is perhaps for some, I think, uh, control of women. Uh, I mean, one of the things, let me backtrack one sec, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, men have evolved to gain sexual access to desirable women, just as women have evolved to gain Sexual access and mating access to desirable men. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the ways in which we have evolved to do that are involve things like honest courtship, uh, investment, you know, et cetera. And then there seems to be this minority—how uh, big a minority is—we don't know—tactic uh, of using deception. And coercion and exploitation and assault to get a mate, to keep a mate, to gain sexual access to a mate, uh, etc. And so, um, so in terms of uh, in terms of prevention, one. If, if you look at chapter eight in the book, I realize I'm, I'm rambling around your question a bit. It's okay, um, but in chapter eight, I provide what I think is the most exhaustive set of women's defenses yeah. that's ever been published i mean that a whole chart individual. sorry
0: as it, you put it in a whole chart too it looks yeah. like uh, you have a,
1: a whole table of uh, women's defenses to sort of before an assault um to during an assault to the aftermath of an assault and i think it's it's really important to read that chapter and to focus on those on, on those defenses which ones are Effective, which ones are not, and also to get away from the victim blaming. Yes. So, the things like uh, tonic immobility—you know—that this is a very uh, predictable consequence. So, tonic immobility is that is that when when the women are experiencing high level of fear and there is no escape possible, then they they often experience it's Sometimes called body paralysis, and it's given other other terms. Uh, where a woman feels like she can't, she can't move. Um, her body is literally immobile, uh, and sometimes women get blamed when they experience that, even though it's something like 50% of women under those circumstances experience that. They get blamed uh, for not fighting back, when in fact it's an involuntary response. Uh, and some have argued that it is, it's an evolved involuntary response mm. uh, uh, that is also seen in the animal kingdom to, in predator-prey uh, interactions. So, it, it, and sometimes women blame themselves for not doing more to fight back when they experience this tonic immobility. And so I think knowledge of these evolved defenses can really help eliminate the blame that's often attached to women who are rape victims and eliminate the self blame as well. Yes. So, um, anyway,
2: sorry.
1: No.
0: And, and actually I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because also in right at the end of chapter eight, you do something that I really appreciate, which is you bring up post-trauma stress and you do something that I find myself advocating often, which is you kind of, drop the d in ptsd
2: yeah Uh,
0: not framing not as a pathological response in any way as a disorder but as a very natural response to trauma and i think you use the analogy of like sometimes if you attempt to treat what you think is a disorder post-traumatic stress disorder you end up just disabling a sensitive smoke alarm so that it doesn't alert you to a future fire right and, and no woman and no one wants to experience post-trauma symptoms it's very uncomfortable but there is definitely evolutionary value to the hypervigilance, to the fear and to the symptoms that arise as a result of these types of trauma
1: right right and and i think that yeah with um with the symptoms of what's called ptsd post-traumatic stress um, disorder which may not be a disorder, as as you rightly point out, uh, maybe saying, you know, avoid, even if there's a low probability of a recurrence, that the damage is so horrific that um, that these symptoms are going to cause me to avoid, you know, going over that hill, taking that path that I took, or 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 even going outdoors. I mean, one of, that's one of the symptoms is that people become um, more closed in they they refuge mm-hmm. uh, which is another another defense, so um, yeah, I think that 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 could be another beneficial outcome of understanding these evolved defenses is uh not pathologizing them mm, exactly i think there there has been a tendency to over pathologize uh, in our field
0: mm. couldn't agree more so I want to come back to that question I said I would come back to and I'll just say right now, I think this this is uh, I've never had an hour and a half long conversation fly by as fast as this one. I I can't believe we've been talking for this long, but let me just ask that final question. Um, What criticisms do you anticipate, if any, and maybe are there any that you might think are going to be unfair and any that you might think will be fair?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a great question, and, and you know I can't anticipate uh, you know all potential criticisms. I mean, every every book that's ever been published uh, undoubtedly has critics. But one thing I would I guess single out that I think that might um, bother some people, uh, and that is the notion that there are fundamentally evolved sex differences in our sexual psychology, and there's been a trend of late, even within academia, of what I call sex difference denialism. Mm. And I think the, the, the sort of impetus behind that is, 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 is well-intentioned in that what people are sometimes worried about is that if there are sex differences, then they might be used to discriminate against women, you know, in particular in the, in the workforce. Uh, and so the intentions, I think, are, are, are good. Uh, but I think actually sex difference denialism when it comes to our sexual psychology harms women specifically. Uh, and the and I'll just give you one example that I talk about in the final chapter of the book and that's laws and policies around sexual harassment and stalking where these laws it, it's actually fascinating from a legal perspective because, Stalking and harassment, sexual harassment laws are among the very few that require the psychological state of the victim um, for it to be a crime. Right. So so for, in the case of stalking, it has to in fear, in, instill fear in a reasonable person. In the case of harassment, a reasonable person would have to view this pattern of con- sexual conduct as sexually harassing. Well, this reasonable person standard uh, is gender neutral. And again, you could say it's, we want our laws to be gender neutral. But what, what our studies have found and other studies is that women experience exactly the same pattern of conduct in the case of sexual harassment as more harassing and more upsetting than men do. And the same with stalking. That is, men, the same pattern of conduct results in greater fear in a reasonable woman compared to a reasonable man. Mm -hmm. And so for these laws that are in part defined, not just by the pattern of behavior, but by the psychological state of the victim, if we assume a gender neutral stance that men and women are identical, this will harm women because women, first of all, are the victims more frequently than men. And how do we deal with this? What if the judge is a reasonable man? as opposed to a reasonable woman? What if the jury is consi- consists of reasonable men versus reasonable women result in different outcomes? And so I think that this reasonable, generic reasonable person standard, which in part, uh, well, combined with this sex difference denialism, causes greater harm to women. Uh, and it causes, uh, and, and, and in part, and I guess I would say that, so I think that that's, one source, some people might who believe fundamentally in their heart of hearts that men and women are identical in their sexual psychology, might be upset and might take umbrage at, at my book because I do argue very very forcefully that men and women differ fundamentally in their evolved sexual psychology, and I think the evidence bears that out. And denying that harms women. But I I expect that some people will take issue with with that. Hmm. Um, but um, what other elements of the book people take issue with, uh, I don't know. Uh, my hope is that people will, will see that part of the goal of the book is to assemble. It There's a scientific goal and a practical goal. The scientific goal is to understand sexual conflict and in all of its many forms within a unified theory. The practical goal is that knowledge about the causes of these forms of bad behavior from unwanted sexual attention all the way through intimate partner violence, harassment, assault, um, that understanding the causes can help us prevent its occurrence. And, and I think that men and women should be united in their goals to eliminate these social problems. And I think, you know, the, there, there aren't any magic bullets. There's no single thing that's going to get rid of them all. but The more knowledge we have about the causes, the better positioned we will be to create cures for them. Amen.
0: And and thank you for writing, you know, just a masterpiece that really identifies these causes. It's so incredibly timely and important and addresses, like you said in the beginning, a perennial human rights violation so i really just genuinely appreciate it and I, I admire you very much you know as kind of a a psychologist at the beginning of my career you know speaking to you a psychologist whose career is has been in full bloom for a long time it's such an honor so well,
1: thank you thank you it's been an absolute delight talking to you and uh i appreciate your um the degree to which you are have been, Form yourself and ask, and are asking sophisticated questions, so that mm. we can have this interesting discussion about it.
0: Mm. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'll, I'll mention the title of the book again. So it's why men behave badly in the U.S. Although uh, many of our subscribers and listeners are actually from the U.K., so you said in the U.K. the title is Bad Men.
1: Bad Men. Yeah, and the same subtitle.
0: <laughs> same subtitle, which in both cases is the hidden roots of sexual deception harassment and assault. Well, Dr. David Buss, thank you again. And um, congratulations. I'm excited for the world to have access to this book. It's awesome. And I'll probably read it again in time and I'll share it with all of my students. I I teach a human sexuality class and biological psychology. Those two subjects, this is like particularly relevant. So I'll be sure to share your work
1: fantastic thanks you're welcome Uh, great great chatting with you
2: Mm.
0: take care
1: okay you too